0: That's heritageradionetwork.org networkorg 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you
0: by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival.
0: We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food.
2: Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are, people of color in restaurants, and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is B.S. <laughs> uh, I, 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 was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock.
3: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're gonna find.
2: You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris.
1: Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is
3: the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect
0: with other folks.
2: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong.
3: And welcome to the food scene on org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with John Thibault, who authored and illustrated a book called Bars, Taverns, and Dives New Yorkers Love. But we're not going to talk about New York from the onset. We're actually going to talk about a small town called Muskegon, Michigan. Which, it's kind of an amazing thing that my mother-in-law is from this small town and has long spoken of Fricanos and Bear Lake Tavern and the Fried Perch right there. And that, that is where you grew up. That, those were your locals.
1: Yeah. Yeah, those were my parents' locals. Those became my locals when I was a little kid there. And kind of kicked off the whole love of taverns and dives and bars.
3: Yeah, what what is your familiar association with bars and taverns? It wasn't just being brought in as a kid as a patron. Well,
1: it, it, it kind of ran in my family, actually. My, my grandpa grew up in Detroit or came of age in Detroit and opened a couple of uh, speakeasies there and did all right for himself until about 1933, and then he, he skedaddled over to the west side of the state to Grand Rapids, and then my dad opened a couple of uh, places in Muskegon—a uh, restaurant and a saloon—and so I think it was just sort of normal for our family's DNA to to enjoy these kinds of places. And my parents started taking us out when we were little. It was yeah. just what we did.
3: What were those places called in Bear Lake or in Muskegon?
1: Uh, the, the particular restaurants yeah. and, and places? Well, there was a the bear Lake tavern, which we called the BLT or the Blit. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was uh, the White Kitchen. Aaron's White Kitchen was sort of a, just a, a, it was like the restaurant at a bowling alley, but there was no bowling alley. And Fricano's was a great pizzeria in nearby Grand Haven that had uh, just good bar pizza and uh, a big old bar and had that great old tavern vibe to it and those were those were uh three of the big ones that we would go to
3: yeah i mean without using those names and talking about specific bars what what makes those types of places so special oh they were really
1: welcoming everybody could go there as a kid uh, they were family places so i was welcome as were my parents and we would see their friends there with their kids. And we'd see old people, young people. Uh, it was kind of a open arms sort of place. And that, those are the kind of places I grew up with. And I love that. I love the, the take all comers kind of place. And it was an extension of the, the neighborhood, really, or the town. You'd, you'd see people you knew there. And it was, it was sort of like going to the beach or going to the state park. You, you just see people there.
3: Yeah, you, you said family, you know, and being a local at a bar in New York feels like an extension of family, too. People that you see after work, people that you see for weekend celebrations that you share uh, some of your most intimate information with. Um, how do you become a local? How do you define one of these bars, taverns, and dives for yourself?
1: Yeah, that becomes your local?
3: Well, you gotta
1: find, you got to find a place that fits your personality, of course, and that just takes a little looking. But once you find it and once you, get, you hit it off with a couple of people at that bar or tavern, you're kind of in the family. They're going to start introducing you to the other folks on staff. You're going to start sitting at the bar more often instead of at a table. You're going to talk to more of the regulars, Ah, uh, the bartenders are gonna know who you are and what you're up to, and have your drink ready when you get there, which is which is pretty sweet. they They take good care of you and and uh, before you know it, yeah they 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 know your birthday and they know when you're up and when you're down and what's going on in your life. And you know that about them too.
3: What day is your birthday? March 29th. Just so if they didn't know, now they really know. They yeah, can listen guys, listen to this recording again. <laughs> it's, it's, Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get that straight. So, Fort Defiance, you're not only local, you have stepped behind the bar. Um, and Sinjin Frizel, the owner-operator of that place, wrote the Ford for your book. And I kind of want to define this term that he uses, uh, third places, mm-hmm. um, what they mean, and what that actual term defines. Yeah, the third place
1: was, I think the term was originally coined by a guy named Ray Oldenburg, and I give a shout out to him in the uh, introduction of the book, and I think the acknowledgments too. He wrote a book called uh, The Great Good Place, and it was about uh, third places, quote unquote third places in American life and how important they are. They're not work, and they're not home, but it's where you find community and where you build community and in a sense family. And it could be a bar, it could be a restaurant, it could be a bowling alley, it could be a church, but it's the kind of places that you find when you need... Uh, uh, it's, it's like Cheers. It's the kind of place where everybody knows your name and, and you, you can be yourself. You don't have to be the way you are with your family or your or, or at the office, for instance. And uh, that that's one of the things that kind of defines the places that I put in the book. They're not... The right place for everybody. They're not everybody's third place, but there's somebody's third place. Every one of the places I mentioned in the book, uh, it's, it's a place where you can uh, you can let your hair down and and be yourself.
3: Yeah. See, mine is Angry Wade's at the corner of Smith and Butler yeah, yeah. for many many a reasons. It's three quarter a block from my house. I watch my Red Sox. I watch my U of M football, and the free popcorn is spectacular. W- what is yours? Because I know. You've not moved, but your local has. Because yeah. when you first came to the hood, it was... It, it was uh, Pete's Waterfront Alehouse. And
1: that was our local tavern, and our local dive was last exit on Atlantic Avenue. And neither one is there now. And we've, we've moved on. Uh, fortunately, about the time those places were going away, uh, the Long Island Bar opened, and that's that's just a wonderful corner tavern on uh, the corner of Henry and Atlantic, uh, just a block from our apartment, and that's become our third place.
3: It's a dangerous third place.
1: <laughs> yeah, they make, they make dangerously good drinks there. But that- fortunately, they have a dangerously good kitchen.
3: Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, whether or not bars, taverns, and dives should have food is another story, but mm-hmm. the, the gimlet with the lime ginger cordial is just... One of the best drinks in Brooklyn, if not, Mm. you know, New York, if not the country, at least to me on a hot summer day. They crush it. And so the Long Island Bar, I I was reading a little bit about it in your book, and I did not know that the bar across the street, Montero's, had some stake in that because in 1951 it was opened by a Montero, Mm -hmm. later sold to someone else in the family, um, you know, uh, many, many years in operation and then not. But it wasn't until it was shuttered for decades and then reopened in 2013 that. Toby Taccini opened up Long Island bar, but he didn't really change it. Obviously he did, you know, there there's amazing updated uh, cocktail list, but what about that space? What about the way that feels hasn't changed since the 1950s?
1: Well, the bar is so beautiful and, and so mid century and still has the cigarette burns on the edge of the bar where, the old owner, uh, Buddy Sullivan, who married into the Montero family, he married uh, Emma Montero, Ramon's daughter. Uh, he would leave his cigarettes burning all over the bar, and they left those those scars on the bar. And I, I think it's gorgeous. They, they varnished it. They kept the booths the same. I mean, they, they repaired everything. They put in a couple of new lighting uh, fixtures, but they kept everything as much... Circa 1955, as they could, and it's it's just it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, clean time capsule, and if you if you haven't been to a corner bar like that, there's there's not many left. There's there's very few of these old. Uh, uh, Earl Gear from the High Life in Manhattan calls them working class elegance, and they were just taverns and steak and chop joints that were all over New York and there's not many left but Long Island was one of those and uh, Toby uh, Cicchini and Joel Tompkins have resurrected that entire feel without changing the look of the bar. They've updated the menu a little bit but they still have meatloaf and they still make a good drink and they still have good fresh beer on tap and they have a tv in the back room for when there's a big game so
3: it's still got that feel to it these details that you mentioned though those little cigarette burns on the bar yeah uh one how many drinks does it take until you notice things like that or do you notice them because you are an artist i
1: notice stuff like that pretty fast uh i like those little details and it's kind of hard because there's like two million of those burn marks. It's kind of hard not to notice them. <laughs> they're they're beautiful. They're like tattoos. They're just these these beautiful scars all over the bar, and they're 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 burnished to a, a sheen. But uh, yeah, the details are fun once you get used to a bar, and you get used to looking for the details, which I I mentioned some of them in the book. It's it's uh,
3: it makes a place. A little bit more interesting when you find that sort of stuff. See, as a painter and illustrator, uh, most, if not all, of the illustrations you have in the book are of the exterior. Mm-hmm. And but you again describe these interior things so vividly, as well as like the interior monologue of some of the people that you know work there. Um, what is it about illustrating the outside of a restaurant that represents its interior? Well, it's it's kind
1: of like the face on a person. It's it's got a lot of personality. I think the exterior, and I needed something that was uh, consistent throughout the book, and I I had started drawing exteriors of buildings uh, inspired by a couple of other artists, uh, specifically um, Michaelopoulos, James Michaelopoulos in New Orleans, and Paul Madonna in San Francisco. I just Loved their drawings of exteriors, and they they rarely drew people in them. They just they loved the buildings, and I love places, so I would I would just concentrate on the exteriors. I you know maybe I'll do another book sometime with the interiors, but that's those details are are pretty well covered with words. The exterior is a nice good overview, the face the face of the place.
3: Yeah, I feel like you have to get inside too. You have to get past the doors and interact with a bartender to really. Get to know a place. The allure is obviously the outside. With Long Island Bar, it's, you know, uh, serif script, and it's neon lights. Mm. But to get to the heart of it, you have to sidle up to the bar.
1: Yeah, seriously, you have to get to the bar, at the bar. Um, Oldenburg, the guy who wrote The Great Good Place, specifically mentioned, uh, he wrote a little blurb for my book that I think is on Amazon or something like that, and he said, the best place to be at the bar is at the bar and and he's a strong proponent as am i of sitting at the bar because that's where you get the best conversations you can sit at a table with your friends and you're going to have great conversations but you're not going to meet new people you'll meet the waiter or the waitress i guess but if you're at the bar and you have this almost like a concierge in front of you the the bartender maybe they're introducing you to new people that are sitting at the bar maybe you're just chit-chatting with people on both sides of you, but you're going to get a lot more personality of the bar sitting at the bar.
3: Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about many of the seats you can have at the bar and the discussions there with. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. We'll be right back. Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, with John Thibault author, illustrator of Bars, Taverns, and Dives New Yorkers Love. But it's not just about being a New Yorker and hitting these places up. There are bars, taverns, and dives throughout the whole country. But we're going to start going through some of our favorites. And number one in the book, I love that you lead with Atlantic Chip Shop. Because for a modest price, the kitchen will deep fry anything. Uh, it has... The most wonderful lady bartenders yeah. and you know that's something that you don't see as often as, as you know I appreciate that conversation because it's both nurturing it's it's you know it, it's it's unparallel. Oh yeah
1: I, I love it I love it my wife's uh, mom and aunts were all bartenders and and strong women and smart and tough and and they were the kind of people that could really run a place with an iron hand. And that, that's what uh, Chris Sell does at Atlantic Chip Shop. He loves the fact that he's got these uh, female bartenders that, quote-unquote, keep the crowd in line. And uh, I'd, I'd love to see more, more lady bartenders around uh, New York. I mean, there are some great places that do, like Clover Club and, and uh, of course, the Atlantic Chip Shop. Those are just a couple in my neighborhood. But uh, yeah, it gives the place a different flavor.
3: So, where is George's seat?
1: In uh, Atlantic Chip Shop. Oh, oh, George, uh, George might be. I think you might be thinking of um, uh, Adobe Blues.
3: Oh yes, yeah. The corner, the corner spot.
1: Yeah, George's uh, George's seat. Uh, Adobe Blues is a is kind of a, a Mexican restaurant slash cantina beer bar in uh, Staten Island and. We could go off on Staten Island because people don't know enough about it, and it's, it's got great places. But one of the, it's a very, very local bar. I call them hyper-local bars. And there's a dude named George that has a seat near the door at the uh, far end of the bar, what I call the, the bottom of the L, where the long end of the bar curves and then turns toward the wall. And uh, if you're in George's seat, that's that's the best seat in the house. Uh, you know, you, you got to get the hell out of there if George comes in.
3: Yeah, I was looking. I was only hoping that in the back of the book there was an uh, index or a map of all the best seats at every single bar because I think it's such a fascinating thing where people sit and why they choose to do so. And you can see physical, you know, uh, physical things. Maybe the bar is worn down a little bit more on one side because of where they're leaning or what they've been, you know, rubbing with their dish rag for ages. But th- there are best seats in every bar. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and quite often it is a seat at the the, the end of the L. If, if you have the letter L either as it is or reverse image of it, depending on whether it's on the left or right side of the bar, it's the one next to the wall. I think. And and it seems to be brought up a lot as the best seat in the house because you can see the whole bar. And you've got your back against the wall, so nothing's happening that you don't know about. You see everything. You can see the door. You can see the whole bar. And you're at the bar, so you're up in a, in a higher seat than if you're at a regular table or a booth or a banquette. So it's, it's generally... You know, more often than not, that's that's the best seat in the
3: house, one that I know well is the Brooklyn Inn. And yeah. my favorite seat is that end of the L of the bar. and mm-hmm. it's it's another one, kind of like Long Island Bar that was uh, purchased or you know, changed ownership at a certain period of time, but still kept its its sense of being in two thousand and seven, I think it transferred. But the brooklyn inn is is a legendary and epic establishment at the corner of Hoyton. Is that? Bergen. Bergen. See, I live on Hoyt, so I just walk down. I don't even yeah, need to yeah. know the cross street. When I see it, I go in. Yep. That, that's, they, they should just call it uh,
1: Brooklyn Inn Place. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's been there since 1885 or 88, something like that. And it's it, it's kind of the perfect example of the old corner bar. Uh, there, there's not that many bars like that left. You'd think there would be more in New York, but there's not. And it's, it's a beautiful... The room is described as sacrosanct. It's almost church-like inside. It's got huge, tall ceilings. It's got a huge back bar, mahogany back bar that's carved like an altar. And uh, the current owners, uh, who I mentioned in the book, said it was their job not to just not screw it up. It, the, and and they did say the room was sacrosanct, and you don't mess with it. And it's uh, it's timeless.
3: Yeah, I love how you give advice as to the best times to drink at certain bars, too. Um, and have a section called the Post-Work Happy Hour, which is a little essay about that. But, you know, we can find you, what, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoons, often at the Brooklyn Inn? Oh.
1: <laughs> if I did that, I'd, I, I don't <laughs> think there would be a Monday. Yeah. Yeah, I got to work on Monday.
3: But but what are some of those tips about getting into these bars? What are the best times to go? Who to go with? And what to order to, to, you know, gain some kind of rapport with that bartender?
1: Yeah, well, of course, it varies from bar to bar. But, uh, yeah, every bar seems to have a couple of sweet spots. And it depends on how you define sweet spot. I'm more of an introvert, so I like it a little quieter, generally. Uh, but when I'm in the mood, I want to be uh, at a place that's lively but not ridiculously loud. It can't be above conversation level. Uh, The noise can't be above conversation level. The music can't be too loud, but I love to have music in a bar. I I don't like a bar without music very often. Uh, But yeah, some bars are, are happy hour bars and other bars are Saturday afternoon bars and other bars that are super duper popular are best to visit midweek, um, maybe on a Wednesday afternoon or a Tuesday night, like McSorley's, for instance. It's a beautiful old bar. A lot of people kind of write it off as a tourist trap or overrun by NYU students. And yeah, that happens sometimes. If you're not in the mood for that, don't go then. You know, go on Tuesday afternoon, go on Sunday afternoon, go on Wednesday night and, and enjoy the bar for what it is at the right time. Sit in a sit in seat that suits you and if you're at a beer bar, obviously order beer. If you're at a cocktail bar, order a cocktail bar. You don't go into a dive bar and ask for their Chardonnay list or whatever. They're, just You use common sense and, and make your bar experience good by adjusting yourself to the bar, not expecting the bar to be the way you want it all the time.
3: So what should I go in and order at Farrell's? Because it was during summer concerts or so just going into Prospect Park. I'd stop in and get a styrofoam container every so often, but th- there are certain drinks per certain bar-, bar, like you said. What are you thirsty for now?
1: Right now? Yeah. Oh god, you mentioned ferals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, I take I take thirty two ounces of Bud Light right now in a in a, in a container, a styrofoam container. Uh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I just had I just had some spicy pizza. I think that would do really well. And it's the freshest Budweiser in the world, except for St. Louis. Yeah, <laughs> if you've been to St. Louis, the Budweiser there is different—the way Amstel is in Amsterdam and the way Guinness is in Dublin. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, you gotta you gotta you gotta get a a big old Bud when you're at uh, Farrell's. Most of the regulars don't get the big ones; they get the twelve ounce, uh, more like the schooners, almost of Bud. Uh, they're they're not huge ones. But every once in a while, a guy will show up and just grab a container and take it out to go like he's in New Orleans. And they got no problem with that.
3: (laughs) You know, the recipes you have in there too, the Bloody Bull, which is the Bloody Mary with beef broth from J.G. Mellon, um, from Toby's, you actually have uh, uh, the recipe for, which drink is it? um, At Long Island Bar. with the For the Gimlet, which I love Mm -hmm. so much.
1: Yeah, and, and the Boulevardier, I think.
3: And, Grand Army, you know, Damon Bolte is a host here at Heritage Radio, has two drinks, and I don't think I've ever actually had the go-to daiquiri, but I certainly have had many a hard starts. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about those two drinks and why you thought it was necessary to also include recipes in this book?
1: Well, I, I could tell you why I included recipes, because uh, the answer is, Michael, people love booze and they love to drink. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's, it's fun to know some of the inside secrets of some of these, some of these recipes. Some are obvious, uh, but some like, like Damon's go-to daiquiri, for instance, or the Irish coffee at Fort Defiance are kind of obscure esoteric recipes. Uh, and, and specifically with Grand Army, um, Damon just loves daiquiris. And I've been there before, late at night after we've had dinner out, and uh, sitting at the bar, and, and Damon will just yell, all right, it's time for a dac-off. <laughs> and that, that means people got to get up and make daiquiris, and they threw me behind the bar with two other guys, and we each made a daiquiri. One guy, the guy that was on duty, did it blindfolded, uh, but I just made mine the way we do at home, and it, it's, it's just a good go-to drink. Everybody should make a good daiquiri, not not like you find it on Bourbon Street, but a real daiquiri with lime juice, and good rum, um, cold served up. And the hard start is just kind of a, a classic Brooklyn thing now. It's uh, half fernet and a half uh, fernet uh, mente. Branca mente. yeah, yeah. Bron- Branca Mente. and it's just <laughs> it's a good digestif that's became sort of a thing when Damon invented it at uh, Prime Meats, yeah, I think. And uh, it, it, that's, that's, a, that's a fun
3: little tidbit. Um, one place that, you know, we've been talking a lot about Brooklyn, though we did Staten Island, but Jimmy's Corner in Midtown. Uh, it, it's these bars that kind of get lost sometimes mid-block, and yeah. you'd walk by if you didn't know to go in, but it's owned, well, it, it encompasses boxing history. I mean, it's a pugilist bar, and it is one of the most amazing places I've ever been in. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a gem. That one was pointed out to me by my boss, uh, Sinjin Frizzell. A lot of writers uh, go to Jimmy's Corner because it was near Condé Nast, among other places. And uh, Sinjin wrote for a couple of different magazines, and a lot of writers went there and some newspaper people. And it's on 44th Street, just off of Broadway.
3: And it's not on the corner. No, no. <laughs> so it's you, a misnomer. You make a...
1: Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's a pun because he was a, a boxer and a yeah. manager, so it was like his corner. Uh, but the fact that you brought up a good point, mid-block bars get short shrift because they're not corner bars. Corner bars... I mean, there's a reason corner bars are iconic. They're on the corner. They're on, they're on the crossroads. You see them more. They're, they're, they're the kind of places you notice. But when you find a place like Jimmy's, it's mid-block, especially in Midtown or really Times Square. That's that's a treat, and that place is. It's been around. It's been a bar forever. It's been Jimmy's Corner since I think it was '71 or two, something like that. When, when Jimmy took over the bar, and uh, that's the kind of place you gotta you, you've got to patronize these places. Uh, they're they're gems.
3: You know, it's funny. I'm picturing it in my head, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think it is. Is Sonny's a corner bar? No. No, Sonny's isn't a corner bar. But it's wild. Sonny's in Red Hook is, is... there. There is one other bar mentioned after it, but I thought you ended your book on Sonny's because it is such a good end cap, and I thought it was at the corner because it feels like it's at the corner of the earth.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's sort of the edge of the earth. I think it was uh, Tim Salton, who was a uh, bartender there for a while. Uh, he wrote a book in 2016, I guess it came out, called... Um, well, it, was, it was Sonny's Nights, uh, stories from a bar at the end of the earth, something like that. And it, it sure does feel like it sometimes. When you're there in Red Hook, in the far end of Brooklyn, right up against the water, you're only a block off the water... Uh, you do feel like you're, 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 if you're not at a corner bar, you're in the corner of New York.
3: Yeah, and the hot buttered rum there during the winters are great, and the liveliness, because it used to be kind of a nautical marine, you know, you have a lot of stevedores over in that sure. area. Um, it just always feels open and airy and welcoming and warm. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it encapsulates what I think a perfect bar should be.
1: Yeah, it's got a good vibe. It's there's a lot going on in that building. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of energy in there, and and a lot of it's really really good lately. But because of the music they have, I mean, I'm sure it was you know, when it was rough. There were other things going on 50 years ago, but the music that they have going on there, it it, it it's it's the heart of that place. And when you're there, all right perfect example of a place that it depends on what time of week or day you go there midweek i go there tuesday after uh, afternoon or wednesday or thursday after i finish a shift at fort defiance at five in the afternoon it's a perfect local spa there's nobody there but a few locals the music is perfect and you're um you're in a magical place where the light is glowing right straight through the bar, almost like Stonehenge certain times of the year and, and day. The sun will set over the harbor and shoot straight into sunnies all the way to the back. So although it's not a corner bar, you get really good light there and that's that's a special time to be there
3: and smoky hormel on wednesday nights one of the best blues jams in the city
1: there's so much good music (laughs) there
3: so being an illustrator and having drawn all these facades if you were to ever open up your own bar what would you make it look like
1: well that's it that's a really good question um corner bar big windows up front a lot of natural light I would probably want it to face one one window to at least face south or west. Have to be mahogany. There would have to be mahogany. I would want a wood topped bar. I'd want a, a tall back bar with big mirrors. It would probably look a hell of a lot like the Brooklyn Inn. I think uh, that that's a gorgeous look. Uh, the old fashioned the old fashioned kind of um, Victorian slash Edwardian era looking corner bar. I I think you you really can't beat that. Although there are gorgeous mid-century bars, too. I think I'd go with the classic mahogany corner bar look. Dark wood, tall mirrors, and high ceilings.
3: What would be your drink there?
1: I think I'd have seasonal drinks. I think I'd steal uh, Toby Cicchini's gin and tonic recipe for the warm months and I'd steal St. John Frizzell's Irish coffee recipe for the uh, cold months. And then I think we'd always have uh, a go-to daiquiri like Damon. Those, are, And then the beer on tap would be kind of important, too. I think I'd have uh, a Founders and uh, an Other Half, and then a super big macro brew like... Bud Light or Coors Light. I think you'd cover everybody with that.
3: Yeah. And what would it be called? Johnny's Corner. Excellent. Well, no, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't wait to see that as either an extension of this book or, you know, a book all its own. And lastly, I want you to pronounce this word in German that means that great good feeling. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: Gemütlichkeit. Uh, and it, it's... uh It's a phrase that was brought, I think I got that right, gemütlichkeit. It's a phrase that was brought up by Ray Oldenburg, again, the great Ray Oldenburg. And it means um, a feeling of warmth and good cheer that you get when you're in a certain place with certain people. And it's generally the kind of feeling you got at a good German beer hall or beer garden. And I think that's 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 the feeling that these places have if not for everybody for many people. And that's that's kind of the feeling that I had as a little kid when we would go to these places like the Bear Lake Tavern and Fricano's and Aaron's White Kitchen and places like that. It was gemütlichkeit. It was it was being with people you love at a place you love, surrounded by friends and good food and and good drinks.
3: Well, I'll see you all at Johnny's Corner someday. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for listening, and thank you, John, for bringing by bars, taverns, and dives New Yorkers love. You've been listening to The Food Scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Whole Foods, Music by Cookies, and David Tattashore Engineering. Cheers.